Well, good afternoon. It is indeed my, uh, my privilege to bring God's Word to you. I, uh, I feel kind of like the, the, back, the backup preacher, and whenever the, the main guy can't be here, I get called up. So, uh, and uh, it's just um, a blessing to me. I'm thankful to be able to do this whenever I can, and uh, I'm grateful to be able to go through this passage with you today. I know it's been a blessing to me, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you as well. So if you take out your Bibles, please, and I would like you to turn to Psalm 12. Psalm 12, we will first begin by reading the whole psalm. The title of the psalm says, For the choir director, upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Are you tired? Of all the lies that are around you, are you weary of being deceived? Does all the deceptive propaganda that's around you bring you grief? Does it make you frustrated, unhappy, angry, depressed? Obviously, we live in a time when, and even in our recent events, when you can see so much lies from so many different places. We're, we're, we're in a culture that's surrounded and, and runs on lies. It seems all that people know how to do well is to lie. And trying to determine what's true is difficult. When you listen to the media or read them, it's hard to know what is true. They de- they, there's a, a bias there. And they're not committed to the truth. When we listen to our politicians... They are sophisticated in their dishonesty. Behind closed doors, they do one thing, and behind and open, they do something else. They know how to add just enough truth to make their lies believable. What about advertising? And how many times does people, as you listen to advertising, how much of that is just partial truth and mostly lies? It's interesting, if you go back and read old advertisements, you see the lies even more and how, you know, you get like a medicine cat thing and it's mostly alcohol and it's supposed to cure every disease from, from cancer to a heart attack. Um, and we think of like our justice system, court cases and lawyers and how much of that is just dishonesty. People who don't even, uh, who swear to tell the truth but don't do it. In business, if you're in the business world and maybe you're frustrated by all the lies that people tell you about the dishonesty and, 
in so much of what goes on in business. We really are a society full of liars. And it's not just those above us, it's not just those who uh, have power, who have privilege, who have influence, who... It's, it's in our families. It's in our friends. They all have this anti-truth disease within them. And when you look at churches, oftentimes it's not much better. Yeah, I think the troubling part, truth of all of this is that if we were to look and honestly evaluate our own hearts, how much lies and dishonesty will we see in our own hearts? I know as I look at my own heart and I, I see how easy I can, I can bend the truth to, to suit my desires, to vindicate my actions, how easy I can deceive myself into thinking my actions are, are good and noble and I can present a, a version of the truth that, that makes me look pretty good. I think you can, hopefully you can say the same thing. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. If you're looking for the worst kind of deceiving thing around, it's you, within you. It's not just the media. It's not just the government. It's in you. And that's the hard fact. It's easy for us to look at what goes on outside of us and go, oh, and criticize and feel good about ourselves. But what about us? What about our own hearts? How easy is it for us to lie to ourselves and to lie to other people? And we're good at it. And we're so good at it, we don't even realize we're doing it. And as you think of all of this, just lies, it's a great burden. Finding the truth is like finding a needle in a haystack. Who can we trust when there's liars all around us? How can we know the truth when it's so hidden? This is part of, I think, some of the suffering we endure as Christians. We have been redeemed. We have been born from above. We, we do love the truth. We love truthfulness. We value honesty. We desire to be truthful. And yet all around us is lies, and we even have to deal with our own hearts. Thankfully for all of us here, uh, this isn't something new. You are not the first generation to suffer from the, the overwhelming flood of lies. David also had this challenge as well. David, who lived in, in Israel, God's covenant people, wrote, about, wrote a psalm about the challenges of living in a world of liars. And I think the lessons that he learned today will help you, will help us today to, to go through this world to deal with those lies in a biblical way. So let's look at our psalm. Let's look at a little bit of the outline, the structure of the psalm. The psalm is kind of fascinating in, in how it's organized. I want to just draw your attention to something here. Uh, in verse 1, you'll notice at the end of verse 1, it says that the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And then as you end the psalm, it says, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. You'll notice the repetition there. It begins, it talks about the sons of men and ends with the sons of men. And I, that's not, that's intentional. 
This, uh, for those who know, this is, there's a chiasm in this psalm. There's also an inclusio in this psalm. And for those that don't know, that just simply means that those two verses, verse 1, one and 2 really, and 7 and 8, kind of form a frame that draw attention to the middle verses there. It's kind of like a, the structure of the psalm takes a spotlight and shines it right on the main part, the main point there, verses 5 and 6, which is about the Word of God, God's promise, and it highlights that. And so structure is helpful because it tells us kind of where the author of our psalm is, is going with it. And I've divided up the psalm into to five points. And the first one is the plea for help in verses 1 to 2. The second is the prayer for God's justice in 3 and 4. The third is the promise of God's deliverance in verse 5. The fourth is the pronouncement of God's truthfulness in verse 6. And, for, and the last point, for 5, the protection of the righteous in verse 7 and 8. I'll go through that again. There's the plea for help, the prayer for God's justice, the promise of God's deliverance, the pronouncement of God's truthfulness, and the protection of the righteous. You'll notice the, the clever, all the P's there? Yeah. Um, so that you'll first just notice the inscription. This is uh, for the choir director. It's, it's to be sung or to be sung with upon an eight-string lyre, and it's a psalm of David. And uh, we don't know the background to this psalm. We don't know when David wrote it and all the, the circumstances around it. And it's really unhelpful to speculate since uh, the psalmist doesn't tell us. But David lived in perilous times. He lived difficult life. And uh, there's many occasions where I think he could have penned such a psalm. So we'll first look at the plea for help there in verse 1 and 2. There David begins by saying, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the, Lord, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehoods to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Notice the, the short and desperate prayer at the very beginning. Help, Lord, or, or help Yahweh, save Yahweh, deliver Yahweh. And it's very short, and it reminds us again that, that prayers, short prayers, are no less spiritual than long prayers. Uh, Jesus warned about making long prayers as though somehow making the longer prayers that God hears those. We're reminded again in this psalm that short prayers are also heard by God. And sometimes there are circumstances where only a few word, uh, we can only utter a few words to God. The situation is difficult, it's busy. And we just breathe out a prayer to God that is short, simple, like help, save, deliver. And that's what David does. And God hears those prayers just as much as he hears a longer prayer. And so David is in some extreme danger. He's unable to save himself. And so he cries out this one request. What is the problem David needs help with? Well, there are really two problems that are contributing to this cry for help. And they're related to each other. The first is, the righteous are a minority. Notice that in verse 1 there. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. The godly man there is, is the, could be translated the covenant man. 
in the sense, the covenant loyal man, the man who is loyal to Yahweh. He is faithful to his God. The faithful man there could also have the idea of a man who is committed to speaking the truth, a man who is honest. And as David is looking at things around him, he's looking at the situation, he's, it seems like the godly man is disappearing. He's becoming extinct. He's, he's gone. He can't find him among the sons of men. It seems like there's none left. And maybe David feels like he's the only one. probably true that David isn't the only one that's truthful, that's, that's loyal to Yahweh, but it feels like that to him. And that's common feeling for God's people. If you remember Elijah, uh, after he had uh, been on Mount Carmel and won the great victory uh, over the, the, the Baal prophets, and he fled for his life, and he was in a rather dejected and a depressed state, and he said to God this, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah felt like he was the only one. Nobody's there. Just me. I'm, no, one, no other righteous persons are left. Well, God corrects him and says, no, actually, God, Elijah, there's about 7,000 more in Israel. It's not just you. And then there was Isaiah. Isaiah, as he looked around in his time, he saw how few righteous people were. He said, the righteous man perishes and no one takes it to heart. The devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. And then there's Micah. Micah, who uh, the prophet Micah said this in chapter 7, verse 1 to 2. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit picker, like the grape gatherer. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunt the other with a net. The truth is the godly person is always a minority in every age. We know that because Jesus told a parable in Matthew 7 about there's a, a narrow gate and few find it. And there's a narrow path and few are going down it. And so if you're hoping for a majority to be around you, to, a majority of believers to be around you, you are going to be disappointed in life. God promises to us a minority of believers in a majority of unbelieving people. And so that's true, most, that is true all the time, but there are times in history where there's times of great darkness, times when God gives people over to their sins. You can think of Romans 1, times when the darkness tries to extinguish the light through persecution, when the salt and the light of the righteous are scarce, when, when evil grows strong and, and there are fewer people, godly people in the culture. And as there's a decrease in godly people in the culture, there's an increase in the ungodly, in the immoral. As more people who love truth are removed from the society, the more lies and deception will increase. And so the first problem, which is the scarcity of the righteous, 
leads to the second problem, which is the increase of the liars. And that's what you see in verse 2. And there, the sons of men are described in three ways in, in their, by their words. The first is they speak falsehood to one another. The word falsehood has the idea of, of vanities and deception. Uh, it's a, a f- sense of false purpose or deception. The word could refer to, to empty speech as well as to deceptive speech. Uh, the word kind of describes talk that's empty, hollow, foolish, just kind of chatter and chit-chat, if you will. It's conversation that lacks value, worth, substance. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I would you know, direct you to go listen to any talk show radio host and you will find the meaning of this word or l- listen to a politician speak or listen to what's on most TV shows and you will get the idea of what this word means. Falsehood, vanity. The second one there is they speak with flattering lips. What is flattery? Well... The word in the Hebrew has the idea of smooth words, words that go down easy. One quotation here I have is, as opposed to real praise, flattery is insincere and almost always has an ulterior motive. So flattery uses true words. It uses false words to lift up someone's pride for a selfish purpose. And you can think of examples of this. I'm sure you can think in your own life. But uh, what about uh, politicians? I keep using politicians as an example here, but anyways, maybe they, they fit this well. Uh, politicians who use nice words. They, they're friendly, they, 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 they compliment you, and, uh, they're, but they're really being nice and friendly simply because they want you to vote for them. Or what about a man who just complica- compliments a woman for the purpose of fulfilling his lust for her? Or kids who come up to you and are nice and kind because they want some kind of present or a snack or something. No personal experiences there. <laughs> they, pe- people use flattery to cover their evil heart's motives with pretty words. And to quote Shakespeare from, I think it is Macbeth, he said this, or his character said this, There are daggers in men's smiles. Isn't that true? Or another quote from not Shakespeare, someone else. A flatterer is said to be a beast that bites smiling. Or another quote. For as a wolf resembles a dog, so doth a flatterer a friend. Isn't that true? I'm sure you have examples in your own life of people who flatter you. And then you find out later on that they really didn't mean it. They were just trying to get something. The third thing is that they speak with a double heart. With a double heart they speak. And literally the word there is is a heart and a heart. It's a very similar idea to flattery. It's uh, people that, it's like they have two hearts. One heart uh, has one intention for the words that they they speak. And the other heart has another intention for the, um, the words that they speak. One intention is for the listener, and the other intention is for their own self. 
And so one meaning of their words is for evil, one is for good. And so these are double-minded people, two-intentioned people, speaking out of both sides of their mouth, and thus they can't be trusted in what they say. And that's the situation David finds himself in. These people can't be trusted. They're habitual liars. They're people, as we see later on, that they're in positions of power and influence. And they use their lies to oppress people, to take advantage of others, to, to craft plots against others. That's a dangerous situation. Spurgeon says this, The psalmist sees the extreme danger of his position, for a man had better be among lions than among liars. This is how David is. He's among liars. He's surrounded by people he can't trust. He don't, doesn't know what they're doing. He doesn't know what kind of plots or schemes are around him. Their words are false and deceptive. At any moment, they could come at him. They could destroy him. They could do whatever they wish to him, oppress him in some ways. And in many ways, I'm sure David feels a lot like a soldier does who is in uh, the thick jungle. If you can imagine that where the soldiers in the thick jungle, they can't see much in front of them. They don't know if there's enemy troops in the bushes around them. They don't know if there's mines placed in the ground. They don't know if there's traps, there's pits, stakes, all those things hidden. It could be anywhere. And you never know when the next attack will come. And in some sense, David feels like that. A very stressful, difficult situation. And so in a situation like this where David doesn't know people's hearts and he, he can't really even do anything, and it's a dangerous situation, David cries out to Yahweh to help him, to save him. And as we move to verse 3 and 4, David now prays that God would also then judge these liars as well. It's a prayer for God's justice. Verse 3, May the Lord, may Yahweh cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. And so here David prays that, that Yahweh would cut off the flattering lips, that is, that he would destroy them, that he would remove them from the earth. I don't think it just means that uh, God will remove lying from the world, but that God will remove liars from the world. That God would, he's praying that God would remove these people from positions of power, even removing them uh, from the earth themselves, itself. Lest you think David is too harsh in this, David's desire is also God's desire. God hates lies, and God hates those who lie, and are habitual liars, perpetual liars. In Psalm, sorry, in Proverbs six or seventeen, two of the there, there are seven sins that are an abomination to the Lord. Seven sins that God hates. Two of those seven relate to lying, because God, God, for lying, a lying tongue and a lying witness are an abomination to God. God loves truth. He hates lies. And to just give further reason why he's praying this way, David explains further the nature of the people he's writing to or writing about in, in verse 
well, 3b and 4. These, these are boastful liars. They, they speak great things, the tongue that speaks great things. And then in verse 4, it says the great things that they are speaking. Who have said with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? They say they can use their tongue, their words to prevail over their victims by using lies, flattery, deception. They would do what they wanted. They're going to get what they, they want. And they're going to be what they wanted. Their words would cause them to triumph over others. Even those who are opposing them, any who would oppose them, they will destroy them in an avalanche of lies. And you can just look at the great boast at the end of verse 4. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Isn't this the, how human nature is? how we do not wish to have Yahweh to be our Lord, but we want to be lords ourselves. That is the, one of our, the great sin that we have. And here, these liars claim mastery over their words. Their lips, they say, are their own. Who is Lord of us? Who can tell us what to do? They're not, they don't want, they're not account, they, in a sense, say they're not accountable to anyone for the words that they speak. They're autonomous. They're independent. They will dominate and Yahweh is not Lord, Yahweh is not sovereign, they are sovereign, and they will use their words as they see fit, and they will use them to crush people under them. And no one's going to stop them. And when this is the attitude of powerful men, their lies cause great destruction, and how dangerous it is for the righteous people. And I think we, we see ourselves in a similar time. We see powerful men who have great influence, powerful companies, powerful governments, using lies, deception, manipulation to get their way, to crush any of those who oppose them with the truth. And so this is still our prayer, that, the, that God may cut off the wicked. We certainly need the promise that God gives in verse 5. Notice that in verse 5, the promise of God's deliverance. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. There's a, a, a causal phrase there that gives the reason for God now arising. These boastful liars were causing the poor and afflicted to suffer and to groan. The Lord saw this. God was aware of what was going on. He, he heard the groans of his people. He heard the prayers of his people. He was not unmoved by what he heard. And like a father who comes to the help of his crying child, so Yahweh comes to the aid of his people. He sees their devastation. He sees their groanings. And he now declares his intention to come to their rescue, to give them help. Notice it says, Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Now I will arise. Well, there's a bit of a tension here because now I will arise. It seems like the powerful people that are lying and flattering and deceiving will be destroyed immediately. 
And yet at the end of the psalm, we still see them strutting about. And so when it says, now I'll arise, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that uh, God is going to crush every, all his enemies right now. But it does mean God is going to act on behalf of his people. God, the Lord says he will intervene in this situation to protect his people and to provide justice in his right time. Notice uh, there in that verse, I will set him in safety. The word safety there is, uh, is the same root word as the word help in verse 1. And so the psalmist prayed for help, or he prayed for God's salvation. And the Lord here in this verse promises help and promises salvation. In a very broad sense of the word salvation. You also see a sense of the desperation that, that the righteous man has as he prays this. At the end there, the safety for which he longs. The word longs there could also be translated panting, like somebody who is desperate for, for water. And so David is panting, desperate, eager for the help of Yahweh his God. And so God promises to, to help those who are devastated by this oppression. Well, how does God help his servants here? There could be various ways God could intervene to provide safety, provide help to his people. God could keep them from danger. God could preserve them from the evil influence of the world. God could keep David pure and truthful and in the midst of a lying generation. God could remove his enemies from their powers of position or positions of power. God could vindicate him with the truth. God could frustrate the plans of the wicked. There's various ways God could intervene to protect his people. And ultimately, I think a promise like this is fulfilled as we look at the end of the scriptures, as we look at the end times. Revelation 21 verse 8 says this, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and, and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all, notice this, liars, that their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So ultimately the promise like this will be filled at the end of all things when God will cut off all flattering lips. But this is a promise for God's people, and it's a promise that should give us great comfort. It should encourage us to cry out to God for help in times of trouble because God hears us and God cares for us. It's a promise that God will come to, at the right time for your rescue. You know, if you live in a time of, of lies and you see the deceptions all around, you can live in fear and frustration and anger. You can get frustrated try and, and depressed as you try to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. You can get caught up in, in the intrigues and plots that go on in, in parliaments, parliaments and in boardrooms and, and wherever it may be. We can get stressed just trying to figure out what's going to happen next and, and what are people going to do next and a psalm like this reminds us that we can leave these burdens with God. 
God has promised here to take care of us. We may not know all that's behind all the deceptive talk. We may not see through all the lies. And we may never know, uh, in this life at least, what is true and what is right when, or what is a lie when it comes to, to history or it comes to politics. But God's promise here is our confidence. We can leave all those things with him. We can leave our safety with him and continue on with our work, knowing that he cares for us and he will protect us. At the same time, the same verse that's a promise and a comfort to the believer is also a warning to, to those who continue on in their sin, for those who continue on with lying and who never repent of that. This is a warning that because this promise, this is also a warning to you because God promises to cut off the wicked liars and bring them to justice. And if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never repented of your lies, you can be assured God will punish you for that. God is not someone who just uh, casually brushes off sin like it's no big deal and there are no white lies with God. God does not take lying uh, casually. God must punish lies. And if you don't repent of it, God will punish you for your sins in the lake of fire, the second death. And so I tell you today that if you've never done that, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sins. You need to come to the Lord Jesus and beg him for forgiveness and ask him and plead with him. And the Lord Jesus Christ loves to forgive sinners that come to him in humility. He loves to forgive. So come to him and find mercy and grace in him. He can forgive you because he died on the cross. He suffered the punishment on, that you deserve on the cross so that you do not have to bear it. So come to the Lord Jesus and find mercy and find grace. So you think about this promise of God and whether it's a comfort or a warning to you today, can you trust this promise? Is God's word reliable? Everyone around us is prone to lie. There's so much lies, we can wonder whether God, this promise, whether it's true, whether is God trustworthy? Can God lie? Well, the psalmist answers that question in the sec, the verse 6 there. The pronouncement of God's truthfulness. David says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. Here's a wonderful contrast. In the, on the one hand, you have the lying words of men. You have their flatteries. You have their deceptions. You have all the... the the error there. At the same time, here we are now faced with, with God's word. God's word, which is pure. God's word, which is truthful. It's God's word, which has no errors. That is free, free from flaws, from defects, from impurities. And notice how it's compared to. It's compared, God's words are pure words that are compared to silver that's been tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. And so this refers to the process of refining silver where they would take the, 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 the ore, the, the silver in its rough form, they would heat it up, all the impurities would rise to the top and they would skim the top off. And then they would cool it down and then they would heat it up again. 
all the impurities would rise up to the top and they would skim it off again. And, and what David is saying here, it's God's words are as pure as silver that's been refined seven times. It's been heated up seven times and its impurities have been removed seven times. The significance to the word even seven there, because it's, it's not necessarily saying it's been done seven times. It's, it's the word, it's a, seven has the idea of completeness, of perfection. So we, what we have the idea here is silver that is perfect. Silver that is free from any impurities. Everything that's in that block is, is pure, 100% silver. In a sense, as we look at God's word, it is pure, 100% truth. There isn't any fragments of error in it. There's no molecules of deception. It will never mislead you. In effect, it's, the Bible is the only thing that you can 100% completely trust in this world. Lots of passages speak of this. Just a couple passages for your consideration. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 119, verse 140 says this, Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, the word, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And all those passages remind us that the Bible is true. The Bible is always right and true when it speaks. The Bible is more accurate than history textbooks. The Bible is more accurate than all the claims of archaeology. It's more accurate than all the theories and ideas of scientists. It's more accurate than all the ideas of psychologists. The world looks at all these things and considers them to be reliable sources of truth. But all of these are impure. There is truth and there is lies mixed in all of, in all of these things. They're often very inaccurate. Only Scripture is pure truth. It is the only true fortress of truth in a world of lies. So do you trust God's word like that? Do you believe this? Do you believe this when archaeology, archaeologists present theories that claim to discredit the Bible? Do you believe God's word is true even when all the experts disagree with it? When all the experts teach on the latest trends of parenting, marriage, relationships, which... When they, will you believe God's word even then? Man's words are always a mixture of lies and, er and truth. While God cannot and never will lie, and his word is pure truth. And this is what gives David comfort. This is, this is his great joy. This is what, at least there's one thing in the world. In the world full of lies, there's at least one thing one book, one person's words that are completely, absolutely true. And that is a great joy and that's a great comfort and it's a great gift from God. And as David thinks about that, he affirms how beneficial this is. He affirms this in the next section. 
the protection of the righteous in verses 7 and, nine, eight, and 8. David responds to God's promise of help and protection by confessing his confidence that the Lord will surely protect his people in the midst of a wicked generation. It says there, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. David responds saying, You, O Lord, you will keep them. You will protect them. You will guard them. I know you will do this. I know your word is true. I am confident that you will do as you've promised. You will preserve him from this lying generation forever. Just even notice the, the extent of that promise there. It's forever. God's promises of protection and care are not just for now. It's for all into eternity. Notice even that God doesn't even just, God doesn't just take us out of this society, of this generation, but he preserves us from it. You can just even see that here. Verse 8 begins talking about the wicked. The wicked are still strutting about. David's still seeing them strut about. But he has greater confidence now. He's clinging to God, by, to God's promises by faith. Even though God may not take us out of this generation, he may not change what's going on, but God can keep our souls from the clutches of the devil. God can keep us living with joy and holiness in the evil world. God can keep us, God can protect us from this evil culture of liars. And God can empower us to be people of truth. And God certainly can remove our enemies from their positions of power. And verse 8 just reminds us why this protection is so needed. The wicked strut or they prowl like a beast everywhere you look. And really this is essentially saying the same thing as verse 1 and 2, just from a different perspective. Verse 1 says, well, there's really no godly people. They're all disappearing. They seem to go extinct. And in verse 8, it seems he's saying, instead of saying there's the godly man's going extinct, he's He's saying that the wicked people are just everywhere. And so you see a different, uh, base, similar themes going on in this psalm. The second line of verse 8 gives us one reason why the wicked can walk so openly in their sin. This occurs because vileness is exalted or honored in society. So vileness here is that which is morally worthless contemptible. And so when a society starts to take pride in sin, when a society, when a country starts to honor what is evil and abhorrent, then you will see multitudes walking around boldly in their sins and the godly becoming few in number. I suppose if you're old enough and you look at your, your lifetime there was a time when evil kind of walked in the shadows, when it wasn't so openly displayed. It was there. It wasn't maybe as prevalent, but it hid when it was there. I think we're in a time where evil, very much like what David finds himself in, where evil is walking proudly in the street, boasting about his evilness, about his sinfulness, about all the evil that he's been doing strutting about, boasting in their sins. 
in that kind of situation, the godly are like lambs among wolves. And I think we can feel like that too. We can feel in our society like lambs among wolves. And the wolves seem to be coming more vicious and more numerous. And so in conclusion, what does Psalm 12 teach us to do when we're living in that kind of situation? Well, the first thing we can learn is that we are to seek our help and protection from God. We're not to respond to the lies and deception of the culture with more lies, more deception. We are to use the weapon of prayer to call for help from Yahweh, like David did. Second thing we can learn is we are to trust God's word, especially his promises of protection, vindication, justice, and not to live in fear and anxiety and worry. Third, we are to seek the truth of God's word. We are to read it. We are to study it. We are to trust it. We are to live it. We are to share it with other people. As we saturate our minds with, and hearts with the truth, we're going to be kept from the evil influence of the lying world. We're going to be able to have discernment to see what is true and what is not. The truth of God's word will give us strength. It'll give us peace. It'll give us joy in a wicked world. I think part of our problem sometimes is we spend a lot of time reading the news, listening to the media, and we can spend so much time listening to all the lies and deception that's out there that we, that we neglect or, or minimize God's Word in our lives. God's Word has a lesser influence because we spend less time in it. And I think this is an encouragement for us to spend more time in God's Word to be saturated by it, to, be, to let it shape our thinking and, and to keep us from the evil influences that go on around us and help us to remember the big picture of life too. I think if I remember Psalm 73 and when I preached it, you know, the, the psalmist is frustrated because there's so many, the, right, the wicked people are doing so well they seem, they, they, they produce, they're, they're going around injustice, doing injustice, they're doing wickedness, and they seem to be doing well, and they're fat, and they're rich, and they're wealthy. And he's getting frustrated, he looks at his life and goes, you know, I'm just doing what's right, and I'm not getting anything out of it. And then he goes to the temple, and he hears the truth of God's word, and he remembers, ah, God will judge the wicked. This life is short. At the end of that, the wicked will be judged. And God will reward me. In fact, he remembers that he has God as his joy and his strength. And his relation, he has the most valuable, greatest treasure possible. He has God himself. And I think when you're in this kind of culture of lies, it's helpful. God's word is helpful. It teaches us where things are going, what God will do, and that truth eventually will win. God's truth will be all that's left. The fourth thing we should learn here is we're to be people of truth. If we are in God's word and we're studying it, then we will be those who strive to speak the truth to each other. We will put off all lying, all forms of deceit, and put on honesty and truthfulness in all things. 
Ephesians 4 verse 25 says this, Therefore, lay aside, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Listen, it's hypocritical for us to, you know, we, we can go, you know, we see the media lying, we see politicians lying, we see other people lying, and we, we see how bad it is, we see how evil such things are, we see how terrible it is to be flattered and to deceived. Well, let's not be hypocrites. Let's be people of truth and tell the truth to each other in love. And I think at the end, just to remind us how thankful we should be for this book, right? Because if you didn't have this book, think of the misery in your life. You have perfect truth in God's word. And and think about those in this world who don't have that. They live trying to figure grappling in darkness with what's true and and what should I believe and one expert says this and another expert says this. We have the expert telling us what's in here. We should be so thankful that God has given us this book and and given us his truth. Let's, uh, Let's thank him for doing that. Well, Father, we do come before you who have given us this book who have moved men in the past to, to write your words down for us, to give us the proper understanding of this world, of, of who we are, of who you are, of how we must be saved, of what is real, what is not. We just praise you. We thank you for being so merciful to us, for your grace towards us, that you took us out of darkness, took us out of the way of the wicked and brought us onto the path of the righteous. Oh, Lord, we do praise you. We do thank you. We are grateful for what you've given us. Lord, help us, Lord, to be people of truth, who love your truth, who study your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.